So I was reading the Bible the other day. I tend to do this. <laughs> and uh, I'm reading along, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not reading to prepare for a class. I'm not trying to get a, a message together. I'm not working toward... I'm not working towards Sunday, even though I have this, this theme that we're working with right now on, on Sunday morning of what's right with church, not what's wrong with church, what's right with church. Even though I'm, I've got this theme in my, in my mind, I'm, I'm just reading along and I'm just, I'm just reading for me. And I read through, I'm reading through Mark chapter 6, and I read through the section that you're probably familiar with, that section where, where Mark is describing as Jesus feeds the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. We call it the, the feeding of the 5,000, but how many, how many people were there? It's 5,000 men. If, if it's the average American family with 2.5 children, I mean, how many people are actually there, right? 10,000, 20,000 people. And so I read through the text, and I'm just moving from the feeding of the 5,000 to the next section, which is uh, where Jesus walks on water. But for whatever reason, I, I look back and I've been trying to pay attention as I'm reading lately and recognizing that, that everything that's in Scripture is intended to be there by God. That, that God has edited what's within the biblical text and what is there He intends for us to have. And so when I see things that that maybe at first glance, I, I might tend to think, well, why exactly is this here? The story would have made perfect sense without this, without this being here. I'm, I've been trying to ask myself why. Why, why, does, God, why does God include, include this? And I look back and I, I see that as, as Mark describes this event where John the Baptist has just been killed. And Jesus and his closest followers, they sail from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other in order to get away and spend some time alone with one another and alone with God. They're met by thousands of people. And then Jesus, he miraculously feeds them from this little boy's sack lunch. And as I look back over that section, it just sort of jumped out at me that there are, there are three verses Four sentences, three verses that are the words of Jesus. Four statements that Jesus makes. Mark records, uh, verse 31, Jesus says, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Verse 37, he says to the disciples, You give them something to eat. And then in the next verse, verse 38, uh, two sentences, one verse. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And in verse 31, with Jesus saying, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest, you have Jesus and his closest friends. And they, they're going to, to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're leaving the masses of people in order to spend some time, some time alone with God, some time alone just among themselves, to spend some time in, in prayer. And the reason behind this is because they are grieving the loss of John the Baptist. 
I think maybe we struggle with this a little bit with with Jesus being both human and divine, and yet they are traveling from one side of the sea to the other because they're grieving the loss of John the Baptist. Think about it. John is Jesus' cousin. He's six months older. In his physical life, he has never known a time without John. Think of the followers of Jesus, several of them who are fishermen, before Jesus calls them, they were disciples of who? They were disciples of John. Even if you think to John chapter 1, it's in verse 29, whenever John sees Jesus and he says to those who are with him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so they're traveling from one side to the other. I think this group, I, I think they're mournful. And I envision they are tired. They simply want to spend some uninterrupted time with God and each other. However, as soon as their boat touches the shore, they're met by thousands of people. And, and when you read this event in all of the gospel accounts, it becomes evident, to me at least, it becomes evident that this is, a, this is a fulfillment of Psalm 23. And I think the backdrop of grief is so crucial as the gospel accounts record this event that took place in Jesus' ministry. Think about the words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Mark records that as Jesus sees the masses, that He sees them as sheep without a shepherd and He has compassion upon them. And then what does He do? He feeds them until they are full. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. And if you read Mark's account, you read the other accounts, they are very particular in including God is particular in in including within these descriptions that it's springtime and there's green grass and Jesus he has them to sit down in green grass beside the quiet waters of the sea of Galilee the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And they're in a valley physically, geographically. But they're also in a a valley emotionally, in their grief. And so I think these words and these truths lived out in Mark 6, this, this living example of Psalm 23. Psalm 23, which we turn to time and time and time again. I think all of this connects with what God wants to communicate to us within this section of Scripture. Stick with me, I promise I have a point. The disciples are tired. And the disciples, they say to Jesus, Lord, It's getting late. Let's send them home. And Jesus says, you give them something to eat. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. 
And the primary verse that stood out to me, and the reason why I wanted for us to take this route this morning, especially with our theme of what's right with church, is verse 37. Jesus says to them in verse 37 of Mark chapter 6, you give them something to eat. And it dawned on me to ask, why does Jesus have to say this? You give them something to eat. You feed them. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And there are 12 men with no Costco in sight, no shipped delivery service, no Uber Eats, no DoorDash or Grubhub. I, uh, I am always amazed. My wife amazes me. You, you feel free to tell her that if you see her before second service. Um, but one of the best things God did for me was to give me a wife that grew up poor. Because she goes to the pantry and the refrigerator and I don't see anything. And she can make something phenomenal. But this, I mean, come on. And Jesus says, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. He tells them, give them something to eat when he knows what he's about to do. He knows what he's about to do, and he knows that he's the only one capable of doing it. And then he says, you give them something to eat. And they're thinking, because you know they're thinking to themselves, Jesus, we're tired. Jesus, we're hurting. Jesus, we are depleted. Jesus, we are struggling. We need to rest. We need to regroup. We need to refuel. Jesus, it is late. This is a remote place. Send them away. And I think we can identify with that. Sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we're the ones who are hurting. Sometimes we're the ones who are depleted. Sometimes we need time to rest and regroup and refuel. You give them something to eat. And this is what I think Jesus is communicating to them. And what I think He's communicating to us within this statement. He is saying, you have got to make room for others. You've got to put others first. Even and especially whenever it's hard. Even and especially when you don't get your way. Because this is the kingdom of God. Where the last are first and the first are last. In the kingdom of God, we consider others better than ourselves. In the kingdom of God, we deny self and we die to self. In these these New Testament truths that we see communicated to us throughout the biblical text, I think they are found in this one single, solitary, isolated statement. You give them something to eat. And that's what's right with church. If you belong to God... If you've been saved by grace through faith, if you have submitted your life, your whole self, 
to Christ. If you have submitted your life to God through Jesus by being baptized into Christ, if you've been immersed into Christ, if you've been resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, and if the Spirit of God dwells within you, if you follow Christ, then the kingdom call upon your life is to make room for others. That's what's right with church. What's right with church is we make room for others. Think about it. What are the two greatest commands? The two greatest commands, love God and love others. Because you cannot love God if you do not love others. You do not love God if you do not love others. And so who is the other to you? What does that look like in your life? Making room for others and making room for for the other. Let me try it this way. I want for everyone to look down at your feet. Go ahead, give it a shot. Everybody look down at your feet. Where are, now keep looking at them. Where are, we, where are those feet going to take you this next week? Think about it. What about tomorrow? Where, where are those feet? Where, okay, you can look up now. Where are those, where are those feet going to take you just this next week? Where are those feet going to take you tomorrow? We are, as believers, as Christ's church, we're the body of Christ, right? Wherever you go, wherever we go, we carry Christ with us. We bear witness to the world on behalf of the kingdom as kingdom, as kingdom people. Who are you going to encounter? What's right with church? We're the body of Christ. You bear witness to and you minister to the world wherever those feet take you. What's right with church? Making room for others is not optional. As a matter of fact, there are very few things that are more godly. And sometimes we fail to attain to all of this. Sometimes we fail to attain to the full measure of Christ. Sometimes we, we struggle, or, or not even as individually, but sometimes just as, as Christ people, sometimes we wrestle with this concept of, of being who God calls us to be and to make room for others. And sometimes, even as believers, I mean, aren't there some Christians that you'd swear were baptized in lemon juice? Do you know people like that? I mean, think, now don't point, but do you, I mean, think about that. We ought to be the most happy, the most joyful, and the most make room for other people on the planet. Who else is going to do it but us? We make room for others. We make room for those who are other than us. And we love others with the love of the Lord. Of the Lord. We make room for others and we make room for one another. but we cannot make room for others by putting ourselves first. We cannot make room for others by being selfish. When we're selfish, when we're prideful, when we're bullheaded, that's what's wrong with church, not right. Go to the next slide here. I wanted to include this statement this morning. This is a statement that 
that's on our website. If you go to eastridge.cc, you look on the website, you see the What We Believe tab, and then if you go under the Essentials That We Teach, there you'll find statements of faith based upon Ephesians chapter 4. One God, one Lord, one Spirit, one faith, one hope, one baptism, one body. These are core values that this church family has had in this community for the last 165 years and 11 months. October 1st of this next year, 166 years. This specific statement that you'll find on our website, it was written by James Hawk, our senior minister. And it was presented by the elders at the Lakeside Church of Christ about 25 years ago. Show of hands if you go back to the, the Lakeside days or the pink, the pink building days. Uh, show of hands if you go back to the, the Rockwall Church of Christ days. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that has been a part of this church's DNA for a long, long time. Let me read this statement in regard to the church. The concept of the church is a group of disciples who have been called together into a group of believers. Jesus is the head of the body, which is His church. When a person repents and turns to Christ, confesses their faith in Him, and is baptized in His name, Christ adds them to the church which He saved. This is the work of Christ, not us. While we at Eastridge receive those into our fellowship who respond in obedient faith, the names in the book of life are written there by Christ Himself. I love this statement of faith, which is really what it is. One of the things that I pick up on is the church directory is not the Lamb's Book of Life. You pick up on that? We are added to the church by Christ, no other. And the church is a group of disciples who have been called, who've responded to the call, and who have been called together. That's church. That's what's right with church. We make room for others. We put others first. The last will be first and the first will be last. We, we consider others better than ourselves. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Right? Amen or oh me? Oh, you're not convinced. I'm going to give you another chance here a little bit later on to do that, okay? So make sure you're paying attention. We submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, right? <laughs> now, if all of that's true, then the opposite's also true. You know what's wrong with church? This is what's wrong with church. When we do not make room for others. When we do not put others or one another first. When we do not consider others better than ourselves. When we don't submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. There is a conversation that takes place in the upper room on the night before the cross that just blows our mind. You know which conversation I'm talking about, right? You have Jesus who's there in the upper room with His disciples, with these closest friends, these ones who the, the ones that we talked about earlier there in Mark chapter 6, as Jesus says, you give them something to eat. They're in the upper room. Judas is going to betray Jesus. And yet Jesus tells them this, one of you is going to betray me. And that statement it prompts this discussion of who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? 
And maybe, I don't know, maybe that comes from a genuine place within them. I'm faithful. I'm going to be faithful. Even if all of y'all fall away, I'm the one that's going to be faithful. I mean, if you think about it, it's the same sort of discussion that is previously had whenever James and John's mother come to Jesus and come, she comes to Jesus and she asks, I want one son on your right, one son on your left. She's, talk, she's thinking about priority and preeminence. She's not thinking about crosses on Jesus' right or left. Who's the greatest? This conversation that comes up in the most inopportune of times, there in the upper room, as their attention is taken off of Jesus, off of His purposes, What I'm saying is when we take our eyes off of Jesus, off of our purposes, His purposes, when we don't make room for others, for one another, when we don't have a kingdom picture, we are dangerously off mission. The world vilifies the other. The world vilifies anyone who differs or disagrees. Just look to social media or your news feed for evidence. But that's the world. That's not the kingdom. The kingdom makes room for others. In the church, there's unity and diversity. We're a part of the global kingdom of God. That's what's right with church. It's not just that the church has a mission. The mission has a church. And that's what's right with church. We're called to lay down our life for the Lord. And that means making room for and sacrificing for others. Jesus says, if anyone will come after me, they'll take up their cross daily and follow me. They'll lay down their life for me. But a part of laying down our life for Him is laying down our life for one another. Putting others first. Making room for others. Considering others better. Maybe even considering others at all. Because in doing so, we exalt Christ. Quite frankly, in doing so, we we are like Christ. This statement from John the Baptist, we began with those events immediately following John's death. These words from the beginning of what we know of John, and they just seem appropriate as well. John chapter 3, verse 30, this is John the Apostle writing about John the Baptist. He must become greater. Talking about Jesus. John the Baptist in the Gospel of John, writing about John the Baptist. Writing John's words. John the Baptist's words. Too many Johns here. And this is John the Baptist talking about Jesus. And he says, he must become greater. I must become less. Your version may read, or the way that you memorized it might be, He must increase. I must decrease. He must become greater. I must become less. What's right with church? Church is saying, He must become greater. I must become less. Church unity requires embracing, He must increase. I must decrease. Let me read this and working toward a a conclusion. All that was the introduction. I ran across this recently, and it just just makes sense to share it now. It's called Church is Hard. Church is Hard. And I've adapted it a little bit, but, but listen to these words. Church is hard for the person walking through the doors 
afraid of judgment. Church is hard for the prodigal soul returning home, broken and battered by the world. Church is hard for the person who looks like she has it all together, but knows she doesn't. Church is hard for the couple who fought the entire car ride to worship. Church is hard for the single mom surrounded by couples holding hands. Church is hard for the widow, the widower, with no invitation to lunch afterwards. Church is hard for the Christian with a wayward child. Church is hard for the person singing worship songs overwhelmed by the weight of the lyrics. Church is hard for the wife who longs to be led by a righteous man. Church is hard for the nursery volunteer who desperately longs to hold a baby herself. Church is hard for the single woman and the single man praying that God would bring them a mate. Church is hard for the person wearing a scarlet letter ashamed of his or her mistakes. Church is hard. It's hard because on the outside, it all looks so shiny and perfect. However, underneath those layers, you'll find a body of imperfect people. But here's what's right with church. Church isn't a building, a mentality, or an expectation. Church is a body. Church is a group of sinners saved by grace, living in fellowship as saints. Church is a body of believers bound as brothers and sisters by an eternal love. Church is a holy ground where sinners stand as equals before the throne of grace. Church is a refuge for broken hearts, a training ground for mighty warriors. Church is a converging of confrontation and invitation where sin is confronted and hearts are invited to seek restoration. Church is a lesson in faith and trust. Church is a bearer of burdens and a giver of hope. Church is a family, a family committing together coming alongside of one another, setting aside differences, forgetting past mistakes, rejoicing in the smallest of victories. Church, the body, and the circle of sinners turned saints is where He resides. And if we ask, He is faithful to come. So on the hard days, those days when I'm at odds with a friend, when I've walked in bearing burdens heavier than my heart can handle, when I've worn the pressures of the world under the microscope of others, when I've walked back in afraid and broken after walking away, I'll always remember. He has never failed to meet me there. That's what's right with church. And so all of that to say this. We don't have it all together. But God does. We are all in equal need of God's grace. As the old adage goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So two things. The first is this. Even if you don't feel as if you fit in anywhere else. You fit in here. We may not look it. 
And we may not always do it all that well. But this is a fellowship of sinners made saints only, only by the grace of God. And if you can get on board with that, then let's do this together. And secondly, sometimes, sometimes, we think a little more highly of ourselves than we ought. Sometimes we are selfish, smug, arrogant, and fickle people. Amen, or am I just talking about me? I told you I was going to give you another opportunity, right? This morning, it may very well be that you know of someone or others that you've not made room for. You know the first thing required? Repentance. Second thing? Humility. Third thing? Taking action. Doing something. But I fully believe that if we will remain open to God, open to His Spirit, open to His Word, open to His church, we'll find ourselves being more of what's right with it. As always, we want to allow a time of of response. and Maybe in thinking about these ideas and considerations this morning, if you're moved to, to respond in a public way, we want to embrace you as you as you come, as Adam leads us in an invitation song, if you've never given your life to God through Jesus, if you've never been baptized into Christ, I pray that you would not leave here this morning without having done so. We'll have elders here at the front to pray with you if that's something that you would would be requiring today. There will be elders standing at the back of the auditorium as well. um, Perhaps if you don't want to come forward, but to go and ask one of them to pray over you. They are godly men who would bless you by praying for you today. We can bless you in some way as your brothers and sisters come forward as we stand and as Adam leads us in song.